This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In 1967, Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez published his masterpiece, 100 Years of Solitude. Because of that book, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1982. It's a family saga that builds upon all of the motifs through which Garcia Marquez is trying to build a universe, really, to, to tell a story of a town on the Caribbean coast that also is emblematic, that it is a synecdoche for Latin America as a whole. I'm Hector Hoyos. I'm an associate professor of Iberian and Latin American cultures at Stanford University. With this novel, Garcia Marquez wanted to contain the whole world. And he did so by zeroing in on his world. This is a hippie book. This is a book um, that was composed while the author listened to the first records by the Beatles and to Bela Bartok, right? And we, we know this from his biographers. This is kind of like the soundtrack of the book as it was being written. Um, this is also a book that happens at the time of the big honeymoon of progressive intellectuals around the world with the Cuban Revolution. This is a book that's published the year that uh, Ernesto Che Guevara uh a young man, right, like Garcia Marquez was relatively young, right, um, is, is trying to change the world. So, so the timing could not be better. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Hector Hoyos to discuss Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was born in Colombia in 1927. He's probably the key figure of his special generation of 20th century writers who shaped modern Latin American literature and brought it into global consciousness. But even before its global breakthrough, Latin American writers had created a rich and innovative body of literature. Latin American literature gained cultural independence from the motherland, from Spain. You know, we speak Spanish and Spanish comes from Spain, right? Um, way, way back. Um, and the traditional narrative is this happened around the time of Rubén Darío, a Nicaraguan poet, a modernista. And so we're, we're thinking by the late 19th century, and, and that is the conventional narrative, Latin American culture had come into its own as an autonomous entity that spans several countries that has renegotiated its ties to the motherland. Building on the foundation set by Darío, Early 20th century authors like Jorge Luis Borges, Roberto Arlt, and Machado de Assis began experimenting with genre and form. Many Latin American authors drew inspiration from broader social and political events, like the avant-garde art movement, the Mexican Revolution, or the threat of American imperialism. One event that shaped early 20th century Colombian literature in particular was an extremely violent period known as La Violencia. From the late 1940s to the late 1950s, the Colombian Conservative Party and the Colombian Liberal Party were at war with each other. Huge numbers of people died during this decade-long civil war. You know, the estimates vary, but we're talking about 
This era gave way to the Nadaista movement, or nothingist movement in Colombia. Authors from this time explored themes of nihilism and existentialism and were heavily influenced by La Violencia, urban expansion, and the beat generation in the United States. Despite producing some extraordinary works, Latin American literature up until the mid-20th century wasn't really given any attention by the Western literary world. It was seen as provincial and unserious. But that all changed with the boom. There was no Latin American literature before the boom because the world wasn't paying attention or had been and had, you know, lapsed um, out of paying attention, you could say. The Latin American boom was an explosion of new experimental work in the 1950s and 1960s of Latin American literature that attracted worldwide attention from readers and the literary community. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez was one of the leading voices. But it wasn't just exceptional literature that created the boom. It was also because the world was paying more political attention to the region as well. This is a moment where the whole world is paying extra attention to Latin America. Um, a, a good factor there, an important factor there, is the 1959 Cuban Revolution, which was an alternative to uh, Soviet communism, a homegrown phenomenon right in front of the United States. And so the world is looking at Latin America at the time that Garcia Marquez's generation is coming of age. Poetry was the dominant literary style at the beginning of the boom, and had been for many years. At the time that Garcia Marquez starts uh, publishing Latin American literature, Colombian literature is alive and well doing important um, experimentation, uh, working with form, dealing with topics that other literary traditions have, have not dealt with. The poetry is amazing. Um, actually, the poetry is more important than the fiction. This is something that is to the boom's credit, that the, boom, the, the Latin American literary boom uh, inverted the priorities there. And so poetry was, one could say, the queen, right, of, of letters at the time. And then the novel took over. So uh, Garcia Marquez's own life, what does his literary life look like? How did he become the legendary writer that he, he did become? What we have is a journalist, um, a, a dropout uh, law student, uh, a bohemian, so someone who liked to be, um, you know, with, with his friends talking about literature and women um, and drinking and partying, listening to uh, Vallenato uh, music and rediscovering the, the local folkloric tradition of the Caribbean coast. Um, an intellectual, um, a man, both of the people and of, you could say, the petty bourgeoisie. He's the son of a telegraphist. And, uh, you know, a tele telegraphist is someone with a standing in society. Um, so Garcia Marquez did not come of um, a wealthy background, but he wasn't a poor person either. Garcia Marquez was born in Aracataca, Colombia in 1927. His parents were largely absent from his early life, and he was raised mostly by his grandparents. His grandmother had a very magical, supernatural view of the world. She would often share stories of ghosts, spirits, and omens. Later in life, Garcia Marquez would credit his grandmother as being his inspiration for the magical elements in his writing. His grandfather was a well-respected liberal war veteran, an excellent storyteller. 
He took Garcia Marquez to the circus every year and introduced him to ICE, a rare thing in Colombia at the time. These events would directly influence some of the most memorable scenes in 100 Years of Solitude. Garcia Marquez was sent to study at a boarding school near Bogota, and it was there that he first took up the pen. He was really a, a graphomaniac, you could say. He wrote a lot. He was always writing from a very early age. Some of his earliest writings include poems, comic strips, short story drafts, and film reviews. Garcia Marquez followed his father's wishes and studied law in school. But fortunately for us, it didn't hold his interest and he continued to write on the side. During his studies, riots broke out and his university closed. He transferred schools and began studying journalism. After his schooling, Garcia Marquez got a job in a local newspaper and tried to make a career for himself in literature. But by this point, he had a family of his own to take care of. He wasn't very sure he would be able to make it. And he was concerned and worried and he had children and uh, they had to make ends meet. And so he worked in a number of ventures, including in advertising. So when you think of Mad Men, right, that world of, uh, you know, boozy lunches and, um, and <laughs> ad firms where you have these like, you know, genius characters, right, who are creative, but they can work for the market. Gee, I hate to say this, but Garcia Marquez was one of those uh, folks at the Latin American level. And so his creativity was intertwined with the market at a, at a young age. And he was, you know, trying to make ends meet and discovering many ways of, um, you know, promoting something that would help him because he has been, you know, a great self-promoter and he, he built his reputation. He was, he crafted it. And I think his work in publicity uh, as, an, as a young man uh, paved the way. How did his career develop and become successful? Garcia Marquez understood himself as a journalist and a narrator from very early on. Uh, there are some, I believe, um, not so great early poems when he was in, 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 in high school, but you know, we all have those. Uh, he was steeped in the Castilian literary tradition, you know, um, in Colombia, in, um, the, the, the 19, uh, late 1930s, early 1940s, Garcia Marquez is born at the end of the decade of the 20s, right? Um, books like Don Quixote, the, the Siglo de Oro, the Golden Age, right? Golden Age poetry is alive and well. You know, it's not something for antiquarians or for scholars. There are popular editions even of Luis de Góngora, who is, who is known as, as this very obscure, um, you know, golden age Spanish poet. So Garcia Marquez is steeped in this tradition. He's, he's reading them because these are the books that are available. Now, he also has an encounter with modernism, you know, the phenomenon that we would know as, as, as modernism in the U.S. He is captivated with Virginia Woolf, uh, with Franz Kafka. But this is for Garcia Marquez at, at um, a milestone, uh, a, a, a pivotal moment. There's the the idea of stream of consciousness, for instance. Um, you don't find that, you could not possibly find that in golden age literature or in modernism, modernismo in the Latin American sense of the word. Um, that is a real innovation and he is captivated by it. 
He's captivated by cinema at large. He considers becoming a filmmaker. Uh, he's going to teach um, script writing in San Antonio Los Baños in Cuba for many years and go back to Cuba to teach. And he's, you know, has a lifelong obsession with, with cinema, who is not always very kind to him. Garcia Marquez published a few short story collections, a couple novellas, and a novel. Garcia Marquez starts as, I would say, one more of the novelist of La Violencia, so trying to provide a realist account with some elements that start to, you know, be more than realist uh, of the events at hand in, in Colombia through the very early short stories. Garcia Marquez wrote several short stories set in the fictional town of Macondo, which is also the setting of 100 Years of Solitude. Garcia Marquez was influenced by the American writer William Faulkner, and Macondo is modeled after Faulkner's fictional Yaknapatafa County. Now, in the Macondo cycle, you have some of the themes that will appear in 100 Years of Solitude. You have uh, priests with, endowed with certain supernatural uh, attributes. Um, you have um, the, the long um, rain that will become a, a chapter in Macondo. It starts as a short story in the Macondo cycle. Um, there's many examples, some characters already, some names, uh, certainly moods. And you have the early novellas that Garcia Marquez writes before 100 Years of Solitude. And all of these elements um, are the building block to arrive to this integrative fiction, integrative plot that brings to its, you know, last consequences, to its ultimate realization, the elements from earlier. So let's move to the text itself. So 100 Years of Solitude... Um what do we know about the kind of origin or the, the motivation of this story? So we can take Garcia Marquez's word on it um, or not. Um, he would say time and again that he had this revelation in 1965 when he was driving with his family from Mexico City, where he was living at the time, to Acapulco. Um, and um, so literally on the way to the beach, he saw the novel complete and perfect in his mind. And he could have dictated the first chapter word by word. And so he uh, canceled the holiday and then they went back to Mexico City where uh, he <laughs> started writing um, 100 Years of Solitude. Garcia Marquez knew he had to write this book and he had to write it fast. Financial and family pressures didn't allow for a long, leisurely writing process. So he worked as quickly as he could, writing every day for 18 months. 100 Years of Solitude tells the story of the Buendia family, beginning with José Arcadio Buendia and his wife, Ursula Iguaran. The family is a patrician family. These are the founders of a village, okay? The thing that they crave the most and the thing that they fear the most is incest. So 100 Years of Solitude is the story of a family that grows ebbs, flows, has many children, uh, but eventually wanes into uh, the last member of the family who is the product of incest and as such dies. But this is the arc. The arc is that when the family grows, and at one point, for instance, there are 17 children that are born of a most distinguished military man in the family, one of the protagonists. And so you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the family that is going to populate, you know, the country and, and, and the world. Uh, it's going to be filled with Buendias. Um, a tiny uh, spoiler, the 17 children are assassinated 
Um, there's going to be um, a, a, a massacre in the town that will kill not only members of the family, but other villagers. And so it seems towards the end that the whole town, always running in parallel with the family, is collapsing. So rise and fall of the Wendia family across, here's an interesting thing, no less than four or five generations. So we start with the great or great-great-grandparents, right? <laughs> uh, move on to the grandparents and so on until you reach the last member of the family. Uh, we're talking four to five different generations. So many things can happen um, in that lapse of time in 100 years. Um, names repeat themselves. You're going to have the Jose Arcadios who turn, tend to be very like uh, brave and outgoing. And you have the Aurelianos who are reserved studios even, right? Um, sometimes they, they, the roles are inverted. You're going to see all the possibilities you can get in this family based on names, their traits, their roles within the family, their affection towards one another, uh, their inability to love in different ways. There's going to be a series of permutations. And for the reader, the experience sometimes is how many more permutations can there be with these elements, which are, you know, all in all, not that many, before I either get bored or this becomes an outright repetition or it becomes absurd in, you know, in the sense of silly. And the novel is always on the verge of becoming silly or gratuitous or a repetition. And yet it doesn't. Okay. There's, there's always something that happens in the chapters that is going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Um, when you think the novel is coming to an end, lo and behold, a yellow train covered in flowers uh, makes its way into the novel in a memorable scene. Um, a character is so unlike the other characters at the same time that it is the perfection. It's like the, the distilled version of the feminine virtues in, in the you know first half of the novel. Um and uh, so much so that this character has to ascend into heaven. <laughs> and this is told very matter-of-factly. So you're, you're always amused. At the same time, the novel does not, you know, peter out into mere entertainment. Uh, there, there's serious, you know, artistry here. 100 Years was first published in 1967. And the timing could not have been more perfect. In 1968, you're going to have the walls of Paris tagged with slogans such as l'imagination au pouvoir, imagination to power, uh, sous les pavés la plage, so under the cobblestone, the beach. The idea that the imagination, that creativity is part of social change and already social change, right? That, that art is part and parcel. And so you have a book that is attuned to that aesthetics. Um, I, I think the, the book also, you know, ties many knots in the history of, of Western literature. So, so think about this. Um, it's written at a time also close to Vatican Council uh, II, where Catholicism, still, you know, the majority religion in the world, is transforming itself. It's, it's Latin Americanizing itself. It's abandoning tradition. Uh, there is a wave of secularism around the world. Um, it also happens at a time when um, many folks from the countryside are moving to the city. 
and, and Latin America is very urban by this point already, but you have this cultural memory of, of rural life. Uh, families are dwindling. They're becoming like nuclear families. And, and it's just like, you know, uh, parents and children and not grandparents or cousins or second cousins. That is kind of like in the past of this, uh, you know, um, of, of the world in, in a sense. And here comes a novel that revisits the late 19th century, large clan-like structures a world steeped with religiosity is becoming secularized. Families are dwindling. Uh, the, the, the world is increasingly urban. And you craft this book in at this moment with this much attention that wants to capture the passing of that world. Also, if I had a satisfactory answer to why this, this, this book, then uh, the book would already be literary history and it wouldn't be, you know, producing questions. I think this book still produces questions, still asks us to think critically. Um, sure, it was the moment of post-structuralism and, and, you know, this book does to textuality many things. It's also the moment of post-colonialism and this book thinks about the global South and the global North in, in novel ways. But all of those factors alone only tell us so much. Yeah, it's interesting to think about a text is alive as long as it's producing questions in its readers. Um, and, you know, this this book, the, it felt tr very true to me that in a way this was a love letter to a form of life that was passing away. And the the most intense loves are those that are in the midst of disappearing. That's when we feel that potential loss even more acutely. Yeah. Let me interject something right there. So one thing that he's bemoaning is patriarchy. So, and, and, and this has led to many interpretations and, and, and um, controversy about this book. Because it is about, an, again, an, an aristocratic family. So isn't that like reinforcing patriarchy? My reading of this is this book is both extremely critical of patriarchy and critical in the double sense of a study of and a rebuke of. Okay, it's both a study of patriarchy and its many ramifications. The second family, the snubbed uh, second cousin, uh, you know, Everything that patriarchy is about, like on the ground, right? So it's it's a study of the variations of patriarchy and a critique. Okay, I think it's it's both these things. Uh, while it's nostalgic, why? Because Garcia Marquez, as a person, as an individual, he loved his grandfather, uh, but I suspect he came of age at a time when he started to appreciate how there was something wrong about that, that way of being a man, you know, that, about those masculinities. This is a book that is, is, is questioning masculinity uh, through and through. Um, I think it's a great read in the age of Me Too. It's very, um, it, it, it makes, makes one interrogate patriarchy in a way that is perhaps more informed about patriarchy because we cannot cancel out and forget something that was so structural to society and at the same time try and understand it, right? Um, it's fascinating to read 
100 Years of Solitude in the year of the Lord 2021 that we're recording this and who knows in, in a few years time how it, it's going to register because sometimes, I mean, you see appalling misogyny, uh, racism, uh, classism. I mean, that's, that's a really moving force in 100 Years of Solitude. And I have to say, Garcia Marquez is nostalgic for that at the same time that he's critical. How could he not be? If you grow up as a subject within a system, you're subjected to it. This is this is your childhood. It's kind of like, you know, you grew up playing with toy soldiers and toy guns. And you know that's kind of like not okay to, you know, have children play with toy guns and toy soldiers. And, and, and maybe that's not the ideals that you want to, you know, uh, communicate to your children. But it's your childhood and you have these fond memories of playing with, I don't know, G.I. Joes, even though it's like, These are like SWAT soldiers or SWAT, you know, that children are playing with. It's crazy. So maybe that's polemical of, of me to say, but, but I think that the nostalgia for patriarchy is there and it's problematic and it's a site to reflect. It's a, actually an extremely perceptive point. The complex emotion of being nostalgic for a life that's passing away that you recognize might be morally flawed but that nonetheless you love because it was your life. You can't really hate, you know, a, a side of you that maybe experienced delight and pleasure and growth. And, and so a mature response to modernizing cultural responses is to recognize that there are in fact some trade-offs. It doesn't mean the trade-offs aren't worth having, but that they're, you know, our configurations of social life that nevertheless had some qualities that one can pine for. Yep, yep, yep. How has this book, besides just being famous and assigned, uh, what influence do you see on broader culture? So there's many different realms. Uh, let, let me mention four realms. Colombia, Latin America, world literature, and popular culture. So for Colombia, this is a milestone and um, entire generation of authors were lost <laughs> from sight because everyone was paying so much attention to 100 Years of Solitude and it so sucked the air out of the room and it had a pernicious influence <laughs> um, in, 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 in Colombian letters. It, it was really a hard, um, you know, act to match Um, and so you can talk about its good influence and it's perhaps, you know, bad influence in, in, in Colombia. Um, it's a formidable gift to the Colombian people because it's a mirror in which uh, we can see ourselves for good and for worse. In terms of Latin America, I'll cite uh, El Crack, so a Mexican literary movement slash click slash generation uh, with distinguished figures there like Jorge Volpi, Eloy Ross. Um, Ignacio Padilla, they would write things like, el crack is our citizenship to the world, meaning we are recognized as Latin Americans thanks to the boom, to the phenomenon that, that Garcia Marquez spearheaded, the Latin American literary boom. So the influence for Latin America is a moment of integration, um, yeah, citizenship, a sense of belonging, of definition. You can define yourself with the literary boom. You can also define yourself against it, as Alberto Fouguet famously does with coinages such as Mac Ondo, as in 
a condo and McDonald's, right? Uh, or magical neoliberalism instead of magical realism. Those are reactions against. Okay, so uh, the boom for Latin America is is that that kind of um, of presence for world literature. Um, I, I once asked Salman Rushdie if he kept a copy, uh, an underlined copy of 100 Years of Solitude on his nightstand. Uh, he laughed <laughs> very graciously, I should say, and and went on to to talk actually about the the train um, and, and how when he was reading this, thinking of of the partition of India and Pakistan, it, it allowed him to understand the encounter of you know tradition a traditional world with. Uh, a Western technologically savvy world. Uh, but for the likes of Salman Rushdie, for the likes of Toni Morrison, uh, of Leslie Marvin Silco, of uh, also Isabel Allende, um, this is a source of inspiration and um, a really energizing read for world literature, for post-colonial world literature, but not just. Okay, There's so many folks who are reading this and maybe not citing Garcia Marquez, because he sounds less cerebral than they want to sound. Now, the, the last instance I'd like to mention is um, popular culture. And that's outstanding. This is something that other great works of art do not have. This dimension of being part of daily life of uh, turns of phrase. Uh, so there's churn of phrases from the titles, from the book itself, from the characters that permeate popular culture. There's an iconography of yellow butterflies uh, that proliferates, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Sometimes it becomes like touristy and, um, you know, utterly, utterly commodified. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's actually a reminder of the frailty of life. Uh, the difficulty of having different social classes speak to each other, because that's what the yellow butterfly is about, if, if you'll recall that passage in the novel. Um, so 100 Years of Solitude is the kind of work that has that standing that people who have not read it have a sense of it, like Don Quixote. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, what can I say? I, I just find that you know fascinating, something worth studying in its own right, and also something worth... Um, Bringing into academia. 100 Years of Solitude is a story about life, death, endings, and beginnings. It is a novel that invites its readers to think about their own past and accept the complex and mysterious forces that have shaped them. It calls into question our relationship to nostalgia and the role memory plays in shaping our futures. So Garcia Marquez wants to, you know, contain the world into a book. As cavalier as that sounds, as ambitious as, as that sounds, that's what, you know, this, this novel wants to do. And he's not alone. Of course, other novels have attempted to do this. He's quite successful, though, you know, at um, closing the loop, at telling stories, like sub-stories um, from beginning to end and articulate them with um, broader uh, stories that contain them in turn. That's something that, that, that makes this such a precious uh, work of art. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, 
and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.